evidence and answers. The ideology of the American Revolution led to a new nation birthed in justice and freedom. The ideology of the French Revolution has led to bondage and tyranny. What are the differences between the two revolutions, and how did they affect the world? Is America headed towards a French Revolution? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat and his guest, Dr. Oz Guinness, will continue on with part two of an interview they started the last time we were together entitled, The Magna Carta of Humanity. When we look at the American Revolution, we look at the Civil War, we look at the Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, they were appealing to the Bible and the principles from the Bible. And then when it came to the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement, they were appealing not only to the Bible, but also to the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. But when we look at what we're seeing now in something like Black Lives Matter, I don't see any appeal to God's Word or Declaration of Independence. I see these movements as something different here. And that's what I think makes it insidious and dangerous. Uh, would you agree with that? Oh, totally. That's what I'm saying. The two revolutions are entirely different. Now, those of us who are Christians, we know, say, you think of Paul's letter to the Galatians, the early Christians in Galatia. He says, who's bewitched you? You came to faith by one gospel, gospel of grace, and now you're following another gospel. Who's bewitched you? And what I'm saying in this book, in in effect, to Americans, who has bewitched you? The American Revolution is entirely different from the French Revolution. And yet, you switch from one to the other, and a great deal of it, without noticing it. And that's absolutely deadly. In other words, the Long March has succeeded. Well, put it another way, the first two revolutions, the English, 1642, and the American, 1776, look different because the English failed. It's now called the lost cause, and the Americans succeeded. But in fact, they're both similar. Through the Reformation, they came out of the Old Testament. So the notion of covenant in the Exodus at Mount Sinai became the notion of constitution. And you can see, for example, the early church. Go back to when the early church became the official religion of the empire. It was 380 under the emperor Theodosius. The church made a terrible mistake. It copied Roman structures. And Roman structures were hierarchical. You had the Caesar and the consuls and the senators and so on. And the church then had the pope and the cardinals and the bishops and so on. And it was a Catholic layman who made the famous remark that all power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely because hierarchies based on power will always become corrupt. Think of the Inquisition. Think of the terrible notion error has no rights. So the Reformation said that wasn't biblical. And not so much Luther, but Calvin and Zwingli and Bullinger and John Knox in Scotland and Oliver Cromwell in England, they went back to Exodus. <laughs> Oliver Cromwell said the Exodus was the precedent he was trying to follow. And of course, that notion of covenant is the Mayflower Compact and behind the famous speech by Winthrop on the Arbella. And so covenant became 
constitution, we the people, and so on. So we've got to explore the roots of these things, not just because it's, quote, biblical and we're Christian, but because it's the greatest maximization of freedom the world's ever seen. And the alternatives are disastrous. Yes, explain that for us. Uh, you state that powerfully in your book. You state that we have to re rediscover the principles of the Exodus Revolution that is lay the foundation for the American Revolution. That actually, so our revolution was a moral revolution based on the principles of Exodus, in which you state is mm -hmm. you know the greatest display of reestablishing justice and freedom for a nation. Yeah, expound on that. Uh, some more for us. Well, I've mentioned covenant. You can come back to that because that's the key one. But let me pick up one that's really relevant both to the church and to America today, which is the notion of transmission, handing it on. You know, as the rabbis point out, what did Moses talk about the, light, the night of the Passover? 430 years of slavery. They're going free. He doesn't mention freedom. They're going to the land promised to Abraham, the promised land of milk and honey. Does he mention it? No. Three times he talks about children. In other words, the story we tell to our children is the key to, one, identity, who we are, and two, continuity, making sure it goes from one generation to the next. And that's critical for both faith and freedom. So you look at America today, take freedom. Civic education in the public schools was thrown out at the end of the 1960s. And then came Howard Zinn, and more recently, the 1619 Project. In other words, what's taught in many public schools is literally suicidal for the American Republic. You cannot continue America with that rotten, toxic stuff. Or take the church, you know, the old word, I don't use it myself much except speaking like this, the old word was catechism. In other words, you teach children or you teach new converts what it is we believe, and it's handed on. But Generation Z has an abysmal view of both faith and freedom. And I don't blame Generation Z for a minute. They just haven't had it handed on well. And the transmission has broken down, both in terms of faith and in terms of freedom. And it's quite simply disastrous. Yeah, explain to us, why does Generation Z have that abysmal view of faith and freedom and of American history? Well, you just take one simple example. The two main instruments of transmission, that was where you handed on families and schools. I mentioned schools. Well, take the family. Families used to have authority, but now fathers, part of the patriarchal system, and parents are sidelined at the age, say, of three and four in schools when children are taught sex education and all sorts of stuff that comes from the sexual revolution. Now, you know, again, you know these things, Pat, but if you read the architects of the sexual revolution, they didn't come from the 60s. Playboy, Hugh Hefner, the pill. It was all the way back to the same place in Paris that the political revolution came from. But if you read one of the later architects, Wilhelm Reich in Europe, he wrote in the 20s. He's quite explicit. 
He wants to overcome 3,000 years of civilization. Pretty radical. And he says quite openly, there are two enemies, the church and parents. Mm. So you, you bring in sex education at three, four. What you're doing is sidelining parents. And of course, they're always attacking the church. But the crisis of the family, it's not just grand things, though. You know, when I first came here in 68 from Europe, my biggest surprise, being in many families, none of them had the whole of supper or dinner together. And the family, this is 68, long time ago, people, you know, the mother was roaring off to a soccer practice or a violin lesson or whatever it was. The family dining table was like a Grand Prix pit stop refueling station. Whereas in Europe, where I come from, in our family, we always had dinner together, supper together. And it was at supper time, I just happened to have heard the stories of my great-great-grandparents and, and so on, the whole family history. But I thought, my word, no wonder people don't know their heritage when the family breaks down over a simple thing like supper. Of course, having lived here now for 30 years, I realized it's extremely difficult. And I wasn't able to hand on to my own beloved son with the ease at which I might have done it if I'd been at home in Europe. Yeah. Now, I know this is a complex and long answer, but how did that happen? How did that revolution with the family and this transformation in our schools, how did that take place? Well, you've got to take apart all the different factors. What I've just said about the supper table, it's just a matter of fast life. And there was the incredible 24-7 pressure we're living under. Fast life, I've tackled this in my little book, Carpe Diem Redeemed. But we've got to remember, too, that when we look at the radical left and look at political ideologies, they are deliberately trying to break up the family. Now, the point, of course, in the Bible is that the family is the foundational building block for any good society. And no society can be healthy if the family is breaking down as it is today. So those are just two of the factors, the fast life and the political pressures. But we've got to look at all the pressures on us. We're called as followers of Jesus to be in the world, but not of the world. So to resist it, we all have to recognize it and see where we live as a countercultural statement. I love the fact, again, our Jewish friends point out, we're all in line with Abraham. And the first word to Abraham when he was called was negative. Leave. Mm. Leave. Break with your culture, your country, your culture, your kin, as the Jews say. You break with them. We're a counterculture. And Abraham, Moses, our Lord, we as followers of Jesus, we should be countercultural. And certainly the way we, families and sex and relationships, and it all starts in the home. You know, Oz, you write in your book, and there are several statements, quite profound statements that I was underlining throughout your book. But, you know, in the introduction, you state the first five books of the Old Testament Genesis through Deuteronomy, give us the Magna Carta of humanity. It offers the deepest and most comprehensive foundations for human freedom ever given to humanity. Now, a lot of us, you know, when we're reading through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, I mean, those are chapters we try to skim over real quickly and get through as we're doing our 
years through the Bible, but they have lay a profound foundation, as you state, for ethics, morality, and human freedom. Explain that for us. Well, you know, the Reformation rediscovered it. In the 17th century following the Reformation is called by historians the biblical century. And there was so much fascination, even with people like Thomas Hobbes, who was an atheist, with what they called the Hebrew Republic. In other words, this new commonwealth of freedom that you see outlined in Exodus. Now, the trouble is, that was the Reformation at its best. But since then, many of us who are evangelicals, I'm an evangelical, unashamed, despite all the tarnishing currently, I'm an unashamed evangelical. But we have to say that many evangelicals spiritualized and personalized Exodus. In other words, what an incredible story of freedom, Passover and so on. Well, it's a prefiguring of my salvation, your salvation. In other words, it's private and spiritual, but in Exodus, it isn't. So there are 650,000 men, who knows how many children and women, but at least you have more than a million strong. And this was the way they're called to live freely and justly together. And that's what the Reformation wrestled with. So the Reformation looked at, say, covenant. The three things about it are incredible. One, everything in the covenant depends on freely chosen consent. Three times it says in Exodus, all that the Lord says, we will do. And the covenant's not ratified until they say that. Now, that's the origin of the wonderful notion of the consent of the governed. It's biblical. Oh, you take something else you were hinting at almost earlier, Pat. The covenant is a matter of a morally binding pledge. It's not a contract. The contract narrow and legal. You take a marriage covenant, till death do us part. It's lasting and comprehensive. And the Hebrew covenant is the same. Now, in other words, it's promise keeping. We forget that. When people keep their word and keep their promises, they're true. You said we've lost the notion of truth. You're exactly right. When you have a high view of truth and people make promises and keep promises, high truth means high trust and high trust means high freedom and low control and low surveillance. Now you take the Chinese, they don't trust their citizens at all. So you have two billion cameras following people everywhere in China. But the Hebrew covenant has maximum freedom because of maximum trust and maximum promise keeping. Now, of course, there's a snag there. The Lord keeps his promise and his covenant, and we don't. So you have to consider what happens when it breaks down and needs to be restored. Yes, you state that in America and also in the human heart, one of the greatest values we cherish is freedom. And we've been talking a lot about that in this interview, but you state freedom's greatest enemy is freedom itself. Freedom pursued in the wrong way too often ends up in serfdom rather than liberty. Explain that statement for us. Well, it's a paradox, and you can see it's the reason why free societies in history very rarely last. You know, one explanation people have given is that freedom depends on structures. You have to have a good framework, good laws that make for good freedom. But they're not, freedom's not only a matter of the structure, it's a matter of the spirit. 
Now, a structure you could lay down like a constitution or a law, and you could keep it for hundreds of years. But the spirit of freedom, you can't do that. You have to do it from generation to generation, as I was saying earlier. Or you take the little notion that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. People immediately say, oh, yes, that's true. You've got to be on the lookout for your enemies. But as you know, and I know well, the deepest problem is not outside enemies. It's my internal problems, sin. So, you know, at the heart of the statement of freedom at the end of Deuteronomy, you know, Moses says to them, I put before you the curse and the blessing, death and life. Therefore, choose life. But there are little words halfway through the paragraph where he says, if your heart turns you away. In other words, all the problems begin in the heart. And that's why the heart of freedom is literally the freedom of the heart. And you have to teach people to become free. So the good old evangelical thing of inviting people into your heart is actually right. You know, as the rabbis say, it's incredible that the Lord who is everywhere except one place, he never invades the human heart. And of course, that's behind say, Holman Hunt's great picture based on Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, because even the Lord does not coerce our hearts. Roger Williams, you know, the great champion of religious freedom, he would say, God never rapes the conscience. Well, that's very profound, which means that the heart is the secret of freedom. That's where freedom has to be freed through the gospel, and that's where freedom has to be cultivated as we grow and change and so on. And that's where freedom has to be handed on carefully or our hearts will turn us free and it'll all go wrong again. Yes. Well, one of the things you state, not only in this book, but in your other books as well, is that you have to have the right definition of freedom. What our founding fathers meant by freedom. When people think of freedom today, what we're taught is freedom is to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. You state, actually, that's, that's, that's right. a very dangerous definition of freedom, not the freedom that our founding fathers of the Bible talks about. Explain to us no, absolutely. the right definition of freedom. Right that. Well, you know, the basic error is the one that Lord Acton described, and he's the greatest thinker about freedom probably ever. Uh, and he said freedom is not the permission to do what you like. It's the power to do what you ought. Now, modern people put it, they try to be a little more sophisticated and say, well, you do what you like so long as you do no harm. But actually, that doesn't work either, because you can see today that sets the harm principle over against the choice principle. So part of the problem of the cancel culture is that people say, oh, you're harming me. I feel dissed. I feel offended. I feel hurt by what that's being said. And so you can cry harm, and shut down everything, including free speech. But on the other hand, the people who take the choice principle, do what you like, so long as you don't hurt anyone else, they often end up hurting themselves, because this unrestrained freedom with sex or drugs or alcohol leads to obsessions and leads to addictions. So the bizarre thing, if you look at America, I do as a foreigner, visitor, this is, quote, the land of the free. But you've got more people in recovery groups and more people addicted mm. than mm. any other country in the world because freedom's gone wrong. 
and Americans don't have a realistic view of freedom. Freedom requires truth. Freedom requires character. And freedom requires a way of life that fits freedom. So the challenge today is, Americans, do you believe in the right view of freedom? And are you pursuing it in the way that freedom itself requires? Uh, that's wonderfully stated. You say freedom is the power to do what you ought. Now, moral law code or universal moral law code and character development was taken out of our public schools. So how are people to know what they ought to do and what is that structure we need that allows freedom to grow? And how do we regain that? Well, there is incredible confusion anyway today, but as I said earlier, you think of the two institutions that are failing on that. So we cannot look to the public schools and followers of Jesus, whose sons and daughters in public schools, really have to keep them ahead of the game and really up with all the ideas and lifestyles they're going to meet so that they're not sucked into that. But we do have still mostly control of our families. And families is even deeper than schooling in terms of passing on rights and wrongs and true and false and all those things. But we've got to do it carefully. You know, so to be in the world but not of it today is really a full-time task. To recognize the world, you've got to resist because it's all sorts of things. I mean, elsewhere I've pointed out to people, and I like to do this to Asians, you know, because they're rapidly modernizing. They can't understand why the West has caved in, including much of the Western church. And I say, well, look, take consumerism. You've got a hundred cereals and granolas in a supermarket. Everything, that's trivial, everything from there is a preference. Which one do you like? What's your choice? Well, that consumerism, putting an emphasis on choice and preference, goes everywhere. It goes right up to our theology. You know, I remember a man saying to me, of course, I put a lot of love on my plate. But then he said, but hell, hell no. You think of the <laughs> pastor last year who said we should unhitch the Old Testament. You mentioned Leviticus. You know, a lot of people don't read Leviticus. It's difficult. No, we all like, say, 1 Corinthians 13 or the Gospel of John. But Leviticus, no, leave it out. No. In other words, you've got, we've got a culture in the church of consumerism, of preference, of choice, of pick and choose. Now, you add all that up, it's a crisis of authority. We say Jesus is Lord. And we say he puts this stamp on the scriptures as his authority, but we don't show it. The American church is suffering a crisis of authority. Yes, in your book you state there are seven great uh, building blocks to build a free and responsible society. And I think chapter one is the point that you make there is that of authority. And one of the things you pointed out in the church, you know, the church is next to the family, to be the defender and proclaimer of truth, to be the defender of God's truth and God's moral law, and to be the teacher of that. But in your assessment, how is the evangelical church doing in, in, in that task? Absolutely appallingly. Nothing makes me... I mean, you've got a, a, an immense double crisis. You've got the American crisis, which we've been talking about largely, but to you and me, that's second to the crisis in the Christian church, and that's sadder and equally profound. 
Now, the sadness here is, if you think, you know, for 200 years, we've faced theological liberalism. We might call it revisionism. And almost all evangelicals have stood firm and faithful, untouched by the ravages of Protestant liberalism. But now, with the cultural Marxism and the justice stuff, and with the sexual revolution, the LGBTQ and all that, we're caving into these at an incredible rate. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even hold a conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, once again, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. <laughs>